You're listening to Live Wild Radio, the part-time adventure podcast. Join us as we explore how outdoor adventures build mind, body, and spirit. Before we get to the show today, we've got our first real partner sponsor, Great Lakes Girya. So Girya is the Russian word for kettlebell. They have kettlebells in stock, which I know is a big issue in a lot of places. Really high quality bells, the Russian hard style, that range from as little as four kilos up to 96 kilos. Really love the quality. Handles are great. The part that's great is we got you a 5% discount. So if you go to greatlakesgearia.com, if you're here in Canada or in the United States, it's us.greatlakesgearia.com and use the promo code LiveWild at checkout. You'll get 5% off. Um, and in addition to kettlebells, they have barbells, they have squat racks, they have dumbbells, maces, weighted clubs, chin-up bars, whole collection of gear so uh don't forget if you want to get in shape don't count on the gyms they keep having to close so set your gym up at home now and save some money on it welcome back everybody to live wild radio i am so excited um because today i'm having a little bit of a reunion um with somebody i haven't talked to and i've been almost 30 years so chris conway welcome uh you jumped out of an airplane and your parachute didn't open properly and you're still yes. here. So do you want the story about how that happened? Let's, because that's, the, I don't have that one on my list. <laughs> so I, I am mostly to blame for that accident. Uh, and I'm mostly, mostly to blame for surviving it in a way. So I have about 700 skydives at this point, And this is in June of 2019. And I was just finally uh, certified as a professional skydiver from the USPA. So I can basically fly my parachute into stadiums, public events, uh, and land anywhere I, you know, I choose, provided I'm with a, you know, a team and it's, you know, uh, sanctioned and notum's been filed and things of that nature. And before I did the, the jump, just to keep it a little bit shorter, um, I, I changed the closing loop, which is the loop that uh, keeps the pin for my parachute together inside the deployment bag in the bottom of my container. And um, that day, was about two weeks after, and I after I changed the loop, and the knot and everything that keeps it all together stretched. So the tension on the pin loosened to a degree that allowed the pin to actually get wiggle itself loose after all the jostling around in the plane. We were in a really old military plane, and I'm sitting down on metal seats and I'm on the metal floor, and then I slide across the floor. I've got a smoke canister on my left foot. I've got a flag on my chest. I've got a full camera rig set up because I fly tandem videos sometimes. And I have all these things going on, which ultimately in, in hindsight was too much. It was my first paid professional demo. And I really didn't need to be doing so many things with the camera, the flag, the smoke, all these things. I should have just done a simple jump. This is my first one and, uh, and bought beer and be done with it. Um, but there was other jumpers who were higher performance canopies and they didn't want to take anything to cause drag. Uh, whether it's, you know, even a smoke canister or a flag. So I, I said, okay, I'm rated to do this. Let's do it. <clears throat> but um, at altitude, once I got to the door, the pin had wiggled itself loose to a point where once I exited the plane, it basically, the, the pin uh, slipped out, the deployment bag came out, flew up between my legs, and then opened in a very 
you know, improper position. You should be belly to earth before you deploy. And I was, you know, back to earth, basically looking up at the plane. And when it came out, it, the, uh, the line set for the parachute wrapped around the camera on my head and got me kind of tangled up in this mess of like line sets. And immediately I knew it was a bit of a mess. So I just right, right away, I'm not going to waste any time here. Basic safety rules, get rid of that parachute. I cut away and I felt myself release and start to go back to, you know, belly to earth. But I didn't know that there was still a line captured uh, by the camera that was on my head, which was GoPro. And we, we always foster the idea that, um, you know, having a camera in your head is a responsibility that, you know, takes a lot of experience and you should be doing it at a, as a newer jumper. But here I am, four canopy courses. I've got, you know, uh, a coach rating, 700 skydives, a pro rating. And these things can happen to the best of us with a lot of experience. And I'm not even that experienced at the, in the grand scheme of things. But um, once it came out and got tangled and I went to my reserve, the reserve came out, got tangled on the um, camera as well, ripped the camera off my helmet, broke the plastic, the camera slid up the line set and um, basically cinched my reserve closed, about three quarters closed. So now I have like a half open reserve and I have this spiraling main parachute still attached because it never fully cut away because it was attached to my pair or to my, attached to my camera and my camera helmet, which I couldn't tell because it's held together with a chin strap. And you, when it's your first malfunction, everything's happening so fast. You're not sure what to do. You're just trying to, you know, keep yourself together. So I basically glided myself to the ground, sort of stopping it from becoming a, a streamer where I had no nylon slowing me down. If I had had a streamer, I'd have hit the ground and died. And uh, I, you know, I credit my canopy piloting skills and my emergency procedures to uh, help get me to the ground in as slow a position as possible. If you watch the video, I've shown you um, my legs are sort of dangling left to right. <clears throat> and uh, I landed luckily like 10 feet from a fence, a tree stump, a swing set and a road on soft grass. And I landed ankle, hip and head in that order. So I sort of did this sort of what they call a parachute landing fall because your feet are supposed to touch and you're supposed to roll. And the way I fell and the way I hit allowed me to absorb a lot of the energy. And, you know, if I landed feet first, my femur would have went through my pelvis or anything of that nature. If I landed head first, which would have been impossible because the parachute's above my head, I would have probably died. So there was a little bit of luck, a little bit of skill. And, um, you know, I hit and uh, luckily only, <laughs> I say this lightly, I only cracked my, my L4 and my vertebra, which, you know, I went in the hospital and uh, uh, they just, you know, fused my spine from three to five. And, I feel like nothing's ever happened. So I, you know, I'm thankful for everyone that wow. helped me and, and helped me recover from that. So that's the, and that's the abbreviated version. <laughs> <laughs> so many things happened in the skydive. Mm -hmm. So what were you thinking in your head? Were you, wait, was it just you know, unsolving or was it like, holy shit? Like, did I, there was a holy shit moment when I was worried that both parachutes would get tighter together and become a streamer that can't resist air and I would hit the ground and, and die. Yeah. And then, and that's where I was trying to prevent. And once I knew I was in this position where I was sort of semi-stable, but I was just sort of flailing back and forth as I went down, I knew I was going slow enough that I wasn't going to die. I knew that my summer was ruined. I'm going to be in rehab. Um, <laughs> I'm going to see my girlfriend tonight. Um, and I was dating this girl um, who, you know, came to my rescue in the hospital. And, you know, I just knew that I wasn't going to see her. It wasn't going to be the summer that I envisioned with her. And, that was the most heartbreaking part of it. Um, and I'd only just recently had a friend who also had a, a much easier crash landing um, 
with a fully inflated parachute and she's paralyzed and was just in the uh, Paralympics. So all these things are going through my mind. And then next thing I know, bam, I hit the ground and it was the most jarring. If you've ever hit your head and you have that, that high pitch sort of like frequency in your ears, it was like that times a hundred. And um, yeah, I, you know, I just immediately was like, Oh my God, I can still wiggle my feet. I was on all fours, just trying to get my breath. And um, people were there right to my, to, you know, to help me uh, make sure I was okay and get an ambulance over, which was, fortunately already there too but i yeah i did no real damage um surprisingly i just i got fairly lucky with how i landed so i'm very thankful for that yeah so what does that make you um how does that make you feel like after that's happened does that make you go oh, yeah. <laughs> you know one of the proudest things i will say is that even though most people have a near-death experience and they suddenly make this transition to life and they go, I'm going to start traveling and doing all these things. I've already been doing them. I haven't really changed my methodology and lifestyle. I still eat clean. I still, you know, work out. I still play hockey. I play baseball. I'm skydiving. I'm wakeboarding, wake surfing. I'm doing it all. Like I have no regrets. I didn't, I'm super happy that I'm not one of those guys that's, that said, oh man, I've been doing life wrong and I need to make a change because I almost died. You know, and uh, that's that's something I don't feel like a lot of people have, have said. I feel like a lot of people who've had near-death experiences, whether it's a plane crash, car crash, motorcycle, they've they've made some change or they've suddenly had a new outlook on life. And I really don't feel all that different. Yeah, because I think a lot of it will come into the thing because you, you had a near-death experience because you were living life well. Not yeah. I had a near-death experience, so I need to start living life well. Yeah. But then I don't have any kids and I have never been married. And although, yeah, I was dating a girl who I was ready to start a family with. I think um, uh, I just didn't. I think part of me sort of realized that maybe I don't need to have a family and maybe I don't need to find the white picket fence marriage. Maybe that's just, you know, not for me. Maybe I'm one of those people of the, you know, one out of 50 who just needs to just live life and, 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 you know, help others and, you know, raise a nephew and be a father figure similar to how I was raised, which was not by my real father, was by my mom's boyfriend and, and a neighbor. Um, surprisingly, like, who has a neighbor raise you? Like, it's absurd, right? It was um, it, my lifestyle and how I was brought up. I feel like sort of maybe subconsciously is, you know, uh, directing me in the same path. And um it just feels maybe maybe more natural than following, you know, the stereotypical, you know, path of having a family, having a wife, having kids and doing, uh, you know, what most people consider the goal in life is to have a family. Well, I think a lot of that is very much societal goals, right? As to what's the right, right. thing to do. Um, but I have to admit, there are times that we've done our adventures and I'm like, and it's all foreign to me, right? Whether it be, you know, mountain climbing or rock climbing or something I'm scared of because I'm afraid of heights, but I've been doing it. And, and I'll, there are times you're like, you know what, if I die, <laughs> but I have children, right? That's the sad thing. But if, but you're doing something that you love, you've lived fully. I don't know. There's part of you that says that anyway. And I have said to some, a few of my friends, I'm like, if something dra you know, tragic happened and I died, like, I feel like I would want everyone to go good for that guy. He 
you know, he totally had a great time. Sure, he died, but like you can't say he didn't do a ton of shit when he was <laughs> yeah. living life. Yeah. And I want and I wanna I wanna be remembered positively, not like, oh, so tragic, he's gone. Like, no, I want, you know, I want people to say, you know, that guy had a great time and like celebrate it more than anything, more than be upset about it. Well, because the fact is, obviously, those of us that do like adventure sports, mm-hmm. um, you know, and obviously things like skydiving, rock climbing, mountain climbing, they might have a little bit higher risk. Uh, yeah. But most of them, you know, w- we have safety protocols, right? It's something went wrong, you know, and then something else went wrong kind of thing for you. Yeah. Um, whereas we run into the thing, like it's the same thing with climbing. Yeah, a rock can fall and what have you. But we've climbed all over North America. And the worst thing you've ended up with was like a tweaked ankle for a, a day or two. Yeah. Right? Um, you know, so it's it's... Yes, maybe, you know. Uh, it's uh, probably safer than mountain biking. <laughs> yeah, like, but, but an insurance actuarial w- could give you, you know, the breakdown of how much more dangerous it is than average. Yeah. The fact is, is like just driving in traffic is dangerous. You know, we just do it all the time. So we're just used to it, you know. It's the most common analogy I use for people, they're like, oh, my God, you almost died skydiving. So you're not going to do that again, are you? And I'm like, yeah, would you get would you get back in the car if you had a car accident? And although, you know, 3% of the population might not, including one of my friends who's in a serious car accident, she hasn't driven since, um, 99% of us are going to just get back in the car and keep going. And at the end of the day, statistically speaking, driving to the drop zone is more dangerous than the skydive itself. Mm-hmm. That's, just the, that's just the fact of it, statistically speaking. Just we equate it to being forcefully, you know, risky because we're jumping out of a plane expecting this piece of string and nylon to save our life every time, but they're designed in a way that they're, they're stupid proof, you know, like you can jump out of a plane and just say, I want to commit suicide and the parachute's going to open by itself. Mm -hmm. You can't stop that. Now you can, if you actually, you know, purposely try to, you know, on the ground, turn off the device that activates the reserve. But, you know, no matter what happens when people have collisions in air, which has happened in the past, you, they find themselves waking up on the ground somewhere completely intact, barely a, str- a bruise on them because they hit the ground soft under a parachute where, and when they landed, they were very, you know, relaxed. So when people are relaxed, they ragdoll and they don't hurt anything. It's when you put your hands out, you can break an arm or leg or, you know, something like this. So it, it's a, it's a safe sport um, at the end of the day. And statistically speaking, you're going to die more on a chance on your way to the drop zone so yeah it's, it's the kind of sport where you know if it goes wrong it can go wrong catastrophically it just doesn't go wrong very often you know so yeah, I think like that's a- the part that people people sort of see right like if everything that could go wrong went wrong you're fucked <laughs> but you know and it's the same thing like you know that we'll run into with any of the other sports but the fact is that that doesn't happen very often Right. So no, I'm one of a very small, small group of skydivers in the world who survived what they call a double malfunction. When your main fails and your reserve fails, like there's less than, I want to say there's less than 20 of us in the entire world, maybe less. And I've only seen two videos of people with double malfunctions survive because I mean, nobody's posting anyone's death either. Right. 
but fatality wise uh, on dropzone.com, I don't know. I know the group, the, the group of people that have had a malfunction and survived is super small. Um, so <laughs> I always think about that in the back of my mind. Sometimes I'm like, you really got off lucky, <laughs> you know, so Chris, so, but I'm just going to keep doing what I'm doing. If you're not afraid to get back on the plane, what are you afraid of? What are you afraid of? Hmm. That's a good question. You know, and then it's funny because like I'm, I am, I don't like looking over the edge of my balcony, even though I'm on the 20th floor. It gives me the willies. I don't, you know, there's some videos of guys climbing a, uh, an antenna in the middle of nowhere mm-hmm. and they have this hook and they climb up and they're changing a bulb and it's like 1500 feet above the ground or something crazy. Oh, I could never do that. I don't like, I don't want to go stand on the edge of the, of the CN tower. I won't go in a helicopter. Oh, really? But if you put a but if you put a parachute on my back, I will go anywhere. Okay, hang on. I think I have a, a bit of a warped sense of. So before I was, when I was afraid of heights, I actually wanted to go parachuting because the idea of being in a plane and you see the cars that look like little toy cars didn't seem real to me. So I thought, yeah, I could, I could do that. I wouldn't go on my own. I'd have to go tandem, but I would. Yes. But. I had developed a fear that I couldn't even walk on the glass floor of the CN Tower or jump off a 16-foot high diving board, make everybody get down off the ladder or stupid things like that, right? Or go on a train track, on a train track bridge, even if it was like a platform. Like that would, that would really scare me or, yeah. But I've gotten used to it. Is it because having a parachute, you have the gear and you feel safe? Or if you had a harness and you were at the edge of CN Tower, would you do that? Like if you had a harness or no? Yeah, so... It, no, I, I don't like the feeling I get in my in my core from being up there because I I I don't know the equipment that is holding everything together on the edge of the CN Tower. Okay. It's like when you're in a car or if you're in a truck, if you were to get into a car accident, you kind of have this sense of security because you're in this vehicle and you're safe, airbags and things of that nature. Sure, you can be a little bit scared, but the, the parachute for me, because I pack it, I know every inch. I know how everything works. I understand the physics involved. I know how to deal with situations with it, like I currently clearly have. Um, it adds a sense of security. Now, like you know, a low flying helicopter, you're not getting out of if it crashes. You're you can easily die. But once you're at altitude, like once I'm over a thousand feet, I don't care where I am. Like you, you want to do loops, I'll be on any any plane, anything, hot air balloon. I don't care. <clears throat> The, the parachute gives me a sense of security because I understand it. I own it. I control it. I've maintained it. Whereas the things that on the CN tower, I don't control that. Oh, maybe the guy doing the maintenance forgot to check the, the cotter pin on one of these harnesses. And like, I go to use it that day and I slept off the edge and I'm dead. Like that part, that unknown, it gives me a sense of like, that scares me. Interesting. And it's, it's such an interesting concept to be scared in certain things. But, you know, like most of us, we are often scared by things we don't understand or don't can't control. Right. Yeah. How long? So 700 jumps over that. How many years does that take? Um, I was up to almost 700 in, I want to say, 2018. So because I, each year I was probably doing somewhere in the area of about a hundred skydives. Um, Cause I would travel to the States in the, in the winter time and I would spend Christmas with friends and I would skydive new year's Eve at nighttime and 
fly my car- my parachute into a landing area with fireworks and fun stuff and you know so much things there's so many things to do and, and places to travel uh, outside of Canada to skydive during the, the winter season so I would do that a lot but obviously COVID sort of put a damper on that for like it has for many of us we haven't traveled so the jump numbers have really dropped off and then after my accident I took a whole year off before I even skydive began um, because I just you know my doctor was like just give it a year before you jump again and I was like sure no problem so instead of, you know, doing that, I was out backcountry snowboarding out in Whistler uh, and, you know, risking danger there <laughs> because it wasn't as hard on my back, you know? So, um, yeah, 700, Scott, I have 750 now or something like that, but I've kind of lost a little bit of the interest in it. Um, I feel, I feel like I've done so many things that the only thing I can do now is really get to what they call ninja level. And that's like being able to fly dynamic freestyle in the sky. And that takes a lot of investment in time and resources, money that I just don't know if I really care to. I, I'm like very ADD when it comes to like, you know, uh, ta- uh, you know, sports and, and just uh, hobbies and things like right now I'm, you know, over COVID I've sort of switched gears and now I'm, you know, I, I'm no longer snowboarding. Now I'm skiing. I learned to ski in the wintertime and I'm refurbishing pinball machines of all things. Like I'm just going down all these different paths and just doing things that I like doing. I'm like at a buffet. I'm like, yeah, I don't like that. I want to try that now. I just, I'm <laughs> switching gears all the time. And you know what I haven't done, which I would like to try is, uh, is rock climbing. I haven't done that. And I have friends who do ah, that too. Yeah. It's, I mean, we live in such a great area for it. I mean, limestone's hard. Yeah. yeah. You, if you learn to climb in Southern Ontario, you're set to go anywhere. <laughs> You're a rock star elsewhere, you know. You know really? Our, yeah. our rock, it's not big, but it's challenging and it's... Glassy. Yeah. So right. it's one of those things where, where when you get to any rock, like sandstone, granite, that have more texture, more grip, um, yeah. where it's not just relying on your strength, but like the friction of your skin on the rock or right. the, shoe, the friction of the rubber on the rock, um, it feels so much more secure. Than sure. If it's slippery, it's scary, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's just harder. Yeah. Right. But um, yeah, we've got a great climbing community here. And uh, so Winston's been doing it since the eighties. Right. Something like oh, that. Oh, you just aged the guy. What do you, way to go. <laughs> everybody knows like, well. you know, we, we already <laughs> talked about turning 50 this year. So yeah. I, I remember doing my first little bit of climbing and that was like at DeCue Falls near where we used to both right. live. And I was like, oh, this is scary. I could fall. And now I'm just like, oh man, this is nothing. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, uh, it's interesting, but it's a lot of fun. It's great core, core workout and just, it's all yeah. good in good community. And um, yeah, for me, it was very much facing my fear of, and just becoming very comfortable of focusing and. Yeah. Cause she went from like learning to climb here to going down to Red Rocks outside of Vegas. and <laughs> I haven't done it yet, but I definitely have that on my list. And, um, you know, when I, when people ask me about skydiving, I always tell them, like, it's one of the most regulated things. Like, oh, I want to go parasailing Vanderbilt. I'm like, guess what? Who set up that rope that day? And who's managing that boat? And like, who tied up the lines? You have no idea. It's not a regulated, uh, you know, sport of any kind. And that's where you see these horror videos of people careening into a condo down in Jamaica by, because they were behind a boat and the rope broke or something happened or they got lost at sea or they died. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas skydiving, when you get into it, you feel a sense of community. 
You feel like you're safe. People are always looking out for you. You know, you have to dot your I's and cross your T's. You have to do all these, you know, you have to do a test. You have to be able to pack your parachute. They're going to watch you pack it. They're going to tell you how you're doing it wrong. You know, you're going to be doing so many things just so you can just do a skydive by yourself. And uh, we always promote people skydiving indoors uh, in a wind tunnel so they can learn how to uh, fly their body safe. Because a lot of times, you know, most accidents happen because, you know, they just, they don't have their wits about them and they're, you know, just spinning out of control or something like that. Um, So it's definitely, um, you know, a sport that I would consider safe beyond most other sports where you can participate and there's a level of risk. Tell me um, if, because I have knee issues, I've osteoarthritis, like really bad knees. Um, So I try and avoid impact. (laughs) If I was, is that, is that a a risk or a challenge with sky parachuting? Um, No, I would say there's always somebody with a sore ankle, myself included, even just last couple years ago when I was down in Florida jumping, you, you know, you can come sliding in fast on your feet and roll your ankle. Now, and I go back up and skydive, and I'll just raise that ankle and come in. I pretty much everybody comes in and slides on their butt because they're coming in fast. Yeah. Um, or if they're coming in slow, you can land on one leg because you, the wind is keeping you. You when you do your landing, you usually come in against the wind, and you just sort of like whoop, plop down, right? Even yeah. on a tandem, if it's windy, you and the tandem are just barely touching the ground. Or if you come in, you're going to slide smooth. So you raise them, you raise your legs when you're coming in on a tandem. Okay. You slide on your butt. So you could do it with a you know completely broken ankle and never hurt yourself. Interesting. Yeah. So how did you get into it? Uh, um, I've always wanted to, and like most of us who got into it years ago, and I would say more in maybe my my age group, we all watched Point Break. And when you watch, they're flying over on their bodies. His arms are behind his head, and he's just like. You know, this is incredible. Like the pure joy that they're feeling when they're in this skydive just comes off the screen and you're, you know, you're mesmerized and you're like, I want to do that. And they said back when that movie came out and was released, um, because I was fortunate enough to actually talk to Tom Sanders, who was the lead aerial videographer on that movie. Um, So I feel like I'm part of, you know, he was very starstruck talking to Tom. He was telling us that at that movie inspired hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands of people to start skydiving <coughs> that year. And although I'd seen it, I didn't have the money, a resources. And I was still scared. Cause I was like, roller coasters scare me. And I didn't want that stomachy butterfly <laughs> feeling. But then a friend was at a drop zone up here, North of Toronto. And he, and I was DJing everywhere. And we were friends from that, from that scene. And he was like, you should come up and DJ the, the we're having a boogie tonight. A skydiving party is called a boogie. And I was like, okay, well I'll come down there. I went down to the drop zone with uh, a girl on a first date of all things. And I was like, let's go to the drop zone. I'm going to play some records later tonight. Maybe we'll go for a skydive. Maybe I'll have the courage. Anyways, I did my first skydive that day. And uh, before I even went to the ground, I had my wallet and I was like, let's go again. I want to get my license. This is the best thing ever. Uh, And from then on, um, you know, that day, um, people were coming in um, in their underwear on a skydive, hitting a slip and slide, getting wet. And then they had jello wrestling on like a trampoline and they were doing a swoop and chug where they come skydiving in and they grab a beer on landing and chug it. I'm like, what? This is adult Disneyland. I need to do this all the time. And so, you know, when you're still looking for the next high and the next fun thing to do in life and you, and you encounter 
these bunch of misfits who are having the time of their lives, jumping out of planes, flying through the sky, you're just like immediately drawn in. And uh, from that day on, I never left the drop zone. Every weekend I was there until, um, you know, probably into the like 500 jump range before I finally started to teeter off a little bit because I'd done so many different things, you know, whether it's flying a hula hoop jump where we have a hula hoop, we fly through it in the air, a Mr. Potato Head where everyone comes and puts a piece on a Mr. Potato Head from some guy flying on their stomach. You know, um, we do like wagon wheels. We fly like a, we'll fly a, a boat through the air and have everybody in the boat. Or we'll do toilet paper skydives where we have a guy flying on his back and he's shooting toilet paper rolls at people and it's shooting laser beams off the end of his hands. You name it, we've kind of pretty much done it all. Um, So there's so many facets to skydiving amongst the camaraderie and, and, and the, you know, the family side of it. You just, it's It's cool. So clearly become obsessed with this and for all good reason, were you able to make eventually turn it into an income and turn it into some kind of job? So you didn't have to like keep dishing out money or. I think after the accident, because there was really only one really big demo group, um, it gave them kind of a black eye because when you have an accident with a professional demo, people get cold feet about hiring you. Hmm. They don't think it's safe. They don't want this negativity in their event, blah, blah, blah. They blamed me for loss of income all these things. And it's like, anyone can have an accident. I don't know why this happened this way, but um, I don't really think it's something I'm going to pursue as an income anymore. Um, And and I used skydiving is one of those things where you can't just like, Oh, I think I'm going to go work this weekend and go do a few skydives. If I'm flying video for somebody who's doing their first tandem, usually depending on where I go, um, they know me there. They're comfortable with my skill level, my level of currency, how many jumps I've done, how often I fly video. And they'll let me do it. But for the most part, you have to be there weekend and week out. And I'm I'm doing too many things in life to want to devote my entire weekend, every weekend, or three weekends of a month for, for you know, even at that point uh, to skydiving. I, I want to do a lot of other different things. So it's not really something that you can do part-time like you would consider part-time job. Um, you have to be current. You have to be there and you have to be experienced. And they want people that are safe. And you're only safe when you're constantly doing it, that's skydiving. Mm-hmm. So I did it for a little while and it was fun bringing people for their first skydive and recording their video. And, you know, I've had a couple of amazing moments where people cry their eyes because they had a, such a, you know, epiphany when they got on the ground that they felt like re- such a release from a skydive. And, and it's beautiful. And it's one of the most uh, exhilarating and rewarding parts of, of skydiving and bringing people into skydiving. But um, yeah, it's it's not something that I want to pursue as like a level of income anymore. It was sort of just sort of, like, oh, cool. I got a few hundred bucks here and a few hundred bucks there from yeah. some video jumps. And that's really, you know, that's where I kind of signed off on it after after my accident. I was like, yeah, I don't want to do this anymore uh, full time or even part time because um, demos are more part time. Yeah. So. And you, and you uh, you're into music just a little. Yeah. I mean, see, there's some records up here that I recorded from years ago, but. That's another thing. I just, you know, I, I liked it, but I never, it just, did, it didn't become a, enough of a, a source of income to live off of. And it was a, it was a volatile lifestyle. So um, I, I was always in IT and I was always in computers. I went to, went to college for it. And I just decided to focus on, on that as a career and, and make all the other things I do in life, whether it's music, Scott Ebbing or anything else that, you know, you can get some residuals from whether I, you know, I do a ringtone for a phone company or, 
I did yeah. some, you know, Foley for a few TV commercials or do some mastering or things of that nature. It's just sort of pocket money and nice to have. It's not something I would like, you know, rely on or, or be a slave to. Yeah. It's so much more rewarding when you don't, you don't, you're not relying on it. You're just like, you know, one day I can literally be sitting and hear a couple of notes of a song and go, Oh my God, I'm going to go home. And I went and remixed a song and did it in three days and ended up putting it out. And that was rewarding and fun because it was inspirational. Not because the guys gave me, you know, $10,000 and I need, I need to pump out five remixes by a certain date. That pressure really does breed uh, a level of artistry that I like <laughs> can fall into. I just, it was just, it was so stressful. Not unless you're on something, I think. <laughs> yes. That might help, but you know. Yeah. People are like tapping on their watch going, I paid you. I need this. Yeah. I need this product now. Like it's even doing fun. graphic design, which I do graphic design on the side um, for a lot of pinball um, um, <clears throat> guys that are doing pinball and, uh, and refurbishing them i do some graphics for them and even them just them waiting on some of the stuff that i do i need i need them to back away and give me my time and i always put in a big buffer like, give me a month and i'll have you something done <laughs> because that pressure is is it just doesn't it doesn't become fun anymore mm -hmm. and i don't want things to lose appeal i want them to be fun well i think that's one of the big things too with anything that requires creativity uh is you have no control over when the good ideas come, <laughs> you know, yeah. it, like obviously you gotta sit down and put your time in and, you know, it's like do your reps. Um, but at the same time, like I, I write and, you know, yes, I can write to a deadline, but you ain't always going to get my most inspired stuff. If it's like, I've got to have it done in three days, you know, whereas yeah. if I work with people and I can, do something and then come back to it and then go, Oh, maybe move this around. And you know, when, when you just leave me the fuck alone, you know, trust that I know what I'm doing. You'll end up getting yeah. much better quality stuff. Right. But it's sort of like anything when they treat you like the guy who would come in and install the dishwasher or fix your toilet, um, which aren't creative endeavors. Like they're just getting, you know, you pay for work and the work is done on a, on a timeline. Um, and that's why I like IT because when I'm working, people don't critique how I'm doing it. They don't have a clue what I'm doing. Yeah. I could tell them that I'm repairing the flux capacitor and, you know, they're fine with it. Okay, cool. And if you Google a uh, news crew drop zone accident flux capacitor, one of the drop zones who was fed up of the media bugging them about, you know, a sad incident where someone got hurt or died or an incident happened. They literally, word for word, told her, and she reported on air that this drop zone is reporting that their plane crashed because of a flux capacitor failure. And it's on Google. <laughs> and it's the funniest thing because you can convince anybody of anything if they haven't got a clue what they're talking about. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So during COVID, you got into um, downhill skiing? Yeah, I, um, I'd always wanted to learn to ski and I was like, why didn't I ever learn to ski? And I broke my boa on my snowboard boot when I was backcountry snowboarding with a girl I was dating and she's a really good skier and she was in heaven there. She was loving it. I'm like, you know what? You teach me to ski. I don't want to fix my boot. I don't want to replace my boots. Let's go rent some skis. And she's like, are you sure? And I'm like, yeah, let's do it. And because uh, she's a good skier and I think because I play ice hockey, um, the, the parallel feet thing is kind of natural. And 
I took the skiing in like a day. And then I, now I really, I don't think I'm going to snowboard this year. I'm just going to ski. And so now I'm going to, you know, book a trip and go out West and learn and, you know, do some proper in the, in the glades kind of thing and, and, nice. and do some more skiing, yeah. take on a new, another new expensive hobby. <laughs> Why not? Yeah. Yeah. We got, into mountain, to- we, we got into mountain biking or I did with my kids because you've been yeah. doing it for a while. You've been teaching us and that I love it. I actually like it more than rock climbing. I think. Cause you, the thing is with mountain biking, you get to do more of it. With yeah. climbing, it's yeah. like you climb and then the other person climbs and then there's moving around to the next climb. Well, and if you play with, and if we're with my kids, then it's me playing them. Cause I don't trust them playing. <laughs> no. they're not. I, I, I equate that to um, surfing. I learned to surf in Costa Rica, but I really didn't like it, but I love wake surfing behind the boat because I feel like, you know, surfing out and, you know, on the ocean, a, I'm kind of scared of sharks. B, it's so much work and you can, and not enough reward. You're like, oh, I'm up. Oh, okay, I'm down. And now I got to paddle for a while and I'm exhausted. I don't, <laughs> I'm kind of like, I want instant, I'm an instant gratification yeah. kind of person. How do you do that? First of all, it's all about the boat. It's a V drive boat. Um, it has a weighted ballast in the rear. So the, it, the, the boat is sort of pushed into the water and it's creating a, basically a divide in the water. And it's creating the wake behind it. And you need a good boat to do this. But you pull yourself out of the water with a short rope. And the and if you're sitting in the water with your life jacket, you put your, your heels on the board, if this is the water. And as the boat pushes you forward, you push down on the board and the boat flips up against the water. And then you pull yourself and you're now you're on top of the water. And as you turn and go towards the boat, you just throw the rope in. And now you're just surfing behind the wave that continuously is created by the boat. Got it. And then, and then that, and from there, it's just about getting balance and learning how to move forward and backward in the wake with your gas and your brake, rear foot, front foot. Well, that's fun. And then, yeah, it's super fun. And you're only going like 10 miles an hour. So you fall, okay. you're like, oops, I'm wet. Like, yeah, 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 yeah. Great. Not so bad. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, wakeboarding is a little more, a little more serious, a little faster. And um, when you catch an edge and you like whack your face or your head, it's a little more of a, a it's a little more of a rattle. Yeah, yeah. But mm. parachuting, would you ever do that? Um, my my thing with it has always been the whole process, like whether I would get into it enough to do it enough to do it on my own, right? Because obviously you you start with tandem jumps and like that really doesn't interest me. Like I like it's the same thing. Like why I have no interest in doing Everest, right? It has to be guided. Um. <laughs> I like adventures on my own, right? And then I think it's something you have to try once and yeah. then decide. And yeah. a tandem feels because you're in front. A tandem feels like a real skydive. Um, and then the other part is just: Do I have room for like another? What hobby am I going to give up? Well, just to try it. Yeah, but but if I like it, then what hobby am I going to give up? Um, well, my <laughs> friends who are longtime skydivers are hardcore rock climbers and they balance the two. Mm. But I mean, if you don't have a hobby that dominates your summer, um, and you can fit it in, like skydiving is one of those things where you will start going full steam and then you will fade off as you become more and more experienced. Like now I can basically with a D license, it's the highest license you can get and uh, all these ratings. 
I can go anywhere in the world and just decide I can borrow a rig and go, go for a jump. I show my credentials. It's no big deal. Uh, if I'm doing anything with like other people in bigger groups, then yeah, it's, it's a little more involved and you won't be able to participate, but it's not something that would dominate your life or you'd have to give up a sport. Yeah. Like you've expressed interest in it. Why haven't you done? Well, I was concerned more recently because of my knees, right? Cause I thought that, cause it doesn't take much to jar them. I'm a lot stronger now. I'm a lot, I can now. I would I say they, they would definitely say, you know, heal first. I mean, unless you have a really, you know, like, so what the girl that hurt her back and who was a paraplegic now, <clears throat> she still has like 60% use of her legs. Um, but she can't like come in on a landing. So she just sort of lands and like skids on her bum. Yeah. So you, yeah. You, know, no. you don't have to rely on, you know, yeah. landing on your ankles and your feet and, and that jarring motion. But one of the things I really want to do also is hang gliding. Yeah, um, I would love to try that. It makes me a little bit nervous because I, I've seen some squirrely like hand gliding situations, but um, I'm kind of gravitating more towards, uh, I think, paragliding now, where you kind of just have your harness and that that sort of elliptical, really tall elliptical parachute, and you sort of walk down a mountain and you can just fly thermals and go around in circles along the coast. That's my next one, I think. And then you can do that in the mountains and the valleys and. Yeah. Yeah, I know. I know somebody I work with who's a um, um, competitive hang glider, and it's a lot of concentration. Yeah, yeah, hundred uh, percent. I mean, a lot of sports, especially when you're flying anything through the sky, there's a level of concentration and experience you need to have there. Um, yeah. Because even those parachutes, if you watch videos online, things can get really out of control with turbulence and things that you don't see uh, really quickly. And so there's emergency procedures involved that you need to yeah. be able to like be on the ball and recover and react and save your life. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So there you go. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Chris, thanks for being on and sharing with us your experience, giving us a little glimpse of parachuting life yeah. and getting through it. Sounds good. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. Cheers. See you later. Take care.